and we're all still trying to do that. Um, Okay, let's get started. Um, so we're going to continue to talk about acousto-optics. Uh, we'll talk about it probably one more day. Um, whether we get through the notes that I have on it, I don't know. I think it's doubtful. Um, so I may skip ahead a little bit at various points today to, to get through the things that I think are the most important. Um, and then we'll have a homework set on acousto-optics. I think we'll get another homework set on electro-optics. And then we'll have our exam. Okay, so last time we had talked about um, the photorefractive effect, and we talked about um, qualitatively why strain produces produces changes in the index of refraction. We looked at the um, impermeability tensor and the contracted notation that let us keep track of that. And then we ended when my computer crashed um, by describing the Bragg condition. And we had a drawing on the board that looked like this, then, that was the Bragg condition in an isotropic material. And it was found from geometrical considerations. So Akira asked a good question, which is, we draw a picture like this, um, the length that one ray take from the input to the diffracted beam relative to another parallel ray. And we require that be some integer multiple of um, a wavelength, what does that really mean if we have a material where the different directions are going to have different indices of refraction and hence different wavelengths uh, in the material? So the short answer was this picture is for isotropic materials where that's not an issue. So today we'll come up with a picture that lets us uh, generalize this to anisotropic materials. And in order to do that, it would be useful to consider the uh, quantum picture of the interaction. Here, instead of drawing waves, I'm drawing particles. So let's say this is a photon, my incident beam. And it has a certain k vector and angular frequency associated with it. And when it diffracts off of a wave front, now we're going to consider that um, colliding with a phonon. So an acoustic quantum energy that has a particular k vector and a particular frequency associated with it. So again, I'm using capital letters to denote the, the acoustic waves and the lowercase letters are the optical waves. And so there's a scattering process. This phonon gets absorbed, so it transfers some energy and some momentum to the photon. That gives it a kick. That's why the diffracted wave has a, a different angle than the and so it's going to have a different k vector. It's clearly a different vector going in a different direction. It's going to have, in general, a different frequency because if this photon absorbs this phonon of energy, that energy has to go into the, uh, the photon and change its frequency. Right, so what is the energy of a photon? Uh, we haven't talked about it in this class, so don't feel bad if not coming to you, but... Yep. You see it like H nu or HF or um, H bar omega in terms of the uh, parameters that we've 
outlined here, we've got omega for the photon, so that is proportional to its energy. How about the phonon, the acoustic phonon? Yep. The energy of a single phonon is h bar, now capital omega. Therefore, conservation of energy says that, let's call this uh, the energy of an optical photon, the energy of an acoustic phonon, and the energy of the optical photon after it scatters. I'll put a prime there. Has to be the sum. So conservation of energy, if we factor out, factor out all the h-bars, just says the uh, diffracted light has a frequency. It's given by the input light's frequency, and then it's shifted up by the frequency of the acoustic wave. So we said this last time as well, and we called it a Doppler shift at that point. So there's a moving acoustic wave and that Doppler shifted the frequency. And so you can think about it as a Doppler shift, or you can think about it as conservation of energy. They're equivalent. They'll give you the same result. So this is conservation of energy. What other conservation laws valid in collisions? Momentum, OK? Anybody know what the momentum of a photon is? Yeah, we'll call it, not that that's incorrect, just that oh, the form we want to work out to is, the momentum is h bar k. Okay, so just like energy is h bar omega, momentum is h bar k. Okay, so k and omega, we can relate to physical properties of the wave, the, the wavelength and the frequency, but they also relate to these quantities, energy and momentum, for an individual photon. And so likewise for the acoustic wave, there's some momentum h bar capital K. And because K is a vector and has a direction, the momentum associated with a, an individual photon or phonon also has a direction in the same, the same direction as K. And so you can do the same analogy as what we had for conservation of energy and find that conservation of momentum tells you K prime is equal to K plus big K. Um, yes. So th there, there is no partial. I mean, that's the quantization of, of things. Now, it's possible that you can have a more than a single phonon absorbed. It's also possible that you can have a stimulated process where a photon is emitted instead of absorbed. Um, we'll not deal with those right now. We will, we will deal with the multiple photon, uh, multiple photon and phonon absorption later today. And the emission is just this picture in reverse. And what that corresponds to is um, your incoming beam not being opposed to the acoustic wave, but being in the same direction as the acoustic wave. Right, so if we reverse this picture, we have
incoming photon that's going to reflect off of a receding acoustic wave. And so this Doppler frequency gets downshifted, energy of the photon gets reduced, and it kicks a new phonon in the acoustic material. So they're not really, this description is general enough to account for that. Okay, so uh, the Bragg condition, which we had as a geometric constraint, we can describe now as conservation of momentum. Our conservation of momentum equation, this is a vector equation. We have our initial k vector plus our phonon momentum proportional to k has to be our new k vector. In an isolated material, k and k have to be approximately the same length. So why is that? So the energy imparted by the phonon is very small. So omega doesn't change significantly. Okay, the fractional change in omega is small, therefore the fractional change in k has to be small as well. Okay, and it just comes directly from the fact that the frequency of an acoustic wave is much less than the frequency of an optical wave. So 10 to the 9 or so, 10 to the minus 9 relative difference. Okay, so for all intensive purposes, we can write our conservation of momentum equation as a triangle, an equilateral triangle, where we have the input k vector, the output k vector, and the difference between them is the uh, acoustic vector. So if the angle of incidence of the light relative to the uh, wavefront of the acoustic wave is theta, then has an isosceles triangle with an opening angle of 2 theta. And because k for the acoustic wave is going to be small compared to that, again, that's the wavelength being much longer than the optical wave. Um, we can say, Big K, well, we can say this. We can say that K over 2 is about little k times sine theta. We can read that as 2K sine theta equals big K. And we can compare that to the Bragg condition we had before. we had um, two lambda sine theta equals lambda over n. So let's compare this. Um, we say big K is two little k sine theta. So big K is two pi over big lambda. Little k is 2 pi over little lambda, which I'll write as lambda naught over n. And 
sine theta. So the two pi's cancel. And I can rearrange this to get um, two big lambda sine theta on one side, and I guess my lambda naught and my n on the other side. And that's the same, same constraint. I didn't write it, but that has to be lambda naught. Okay, so this is another way of saying the uh, Bragg condition is met. The Bragg condition, which is when you have uh, efficient transfer of the input wave to a diffractive, you have conservation of momentum. Other diffracted angles, or other possible diffracted angles, can't satisfy this conservation of momentum expression. Therefore, you don't get efficient coupling of light to those would-be diffracted orders. OK, so what happens in an anisotropic material? Well, basically the same thing, only now the length of these k vectors, because they depend on the index of refraction, and the index of refraction depends on the direction of propagation, um, they no longer have to be the same. They're going to vary depending on the direction. So we had a geometrical construct that told us how long this is called the normal shells. And so I've drawn a two-dimensional slice through the normal shell axial crystal here. What that tells us is if you have propagation in a certain direction, the distance from the origin to the intercept, the first intersection of that direction with your shell, that length is one possible value for k for a propagating wave. And there's another shell, there's another possible length, another possible value for k that a propagating wave can have in that direction. Tropic material. These spheres or the So what this diagram is, is if I drew a circle, and I have light propagating in a certain direction, the length of the k vector is the length of the uh, distance to the normal shell in that direction. And then when I add my acoustic k vector, I need to get to a point that's on the normal shell so that the resulting k vector can also be a solution to wave propagation in this new direction. And that's going to happen when this triangle is symmetric. A circular uh, shell that I'm dealing with, if it's an isotropic if it's an isotropic, normal shells will be ellipses. and the normal shells will be ellipses. Um, so let's look at the cross-section of the normal shell in the xz plane in an uniaxial crystal. So z is always the direction of the optical axis. 
Right, what does that mean? What's the direction of the optical axis? Yes, when the uh, index of refraction is independent of polarization, that means the magnitude of the K vector is independent of polarization. And so there's one direction, vertical here, in which the length of the K vector to each of the two shells is identical. Right, so along Z, we'll only have one possible K vector. Okay, so let's light is propagating at some arbitrary. Um, I can find the two possible K vectors by uh, the distance to the two shells in that direction. From that point, add on the acoustic K vector. If the point that I get to does not lie on one of the normal shells, and I can't have a scattered wave that, uh, that is the sum of the momentum of the acoustic and the, the optical K vectors. So there's only so if I were to tell you that you have a certain value for the K vector, uh, the acoustic K vector, certain acoustic waves, what direction can you send the light in to get a certain What you'd have to do is take that K vector and you'd have to find locations. Let's say, say the K is exactly the length of this um, marker, and it's in this direction. I have to find places where both ends of the marker touch the, op the uh, normal, normal shell. So there's one possible solution here. The input K vector would have to be to here, and then the output K vector would have to be to there. Another solution down here, if you think about it, is the same geometry, just the waves are reversed, it's the time reversed. There's also a solution here. And what's different about the two possible solutions I get between here and here? The polarization of the waves is different. One has, um, which one has light with the extraordinary polarization? Let me ask this, which of these shells represents the extraordinary polarization? The round one or the elliptical one? one is the extraordinary polarization. The ordinary polarization. Ordinary means it doesn't matter which direction you look. The index of refraction, the length of the K vector is the same in any direction. But the round one is always the, the ordinary index. Um, it's also possible you could have solutions like this where the input light has ordinary polarization and the diffracted light has extraordinary polarization. So it's possible to have polarization change in the acoustic wave. Diagram that there are geometrical solutions that conserve momentum when that's the case. They tend to be less efficient um, because you have radiating dipoles oscillating in one direction, trying to excite waves in the other direction. But because it's an anisotropic material, an electric field oscillating in one direction produces radiating dipoles that aren't quite well. Component of the uh, D field that can excite an orthogonal electric field polarization. 
we'll see that mathematically a little bit later. Um, but before we do much math, it's fun to play with the geometry of these normal shells and look at sort of all the different cases. Um, incident wave polarized as an E wave, diffracted wave polarized as an E wave. Ready? Sort of saw that possible solution. So for a given acoustic K vector, you can find a solution um, where the input and output waves are E waves and that the tips of your acoustic K vector lie along this elliptical normal shell. Um, incident wave as an E wave, output wave as an O wave. So here we have to find a location where, um, where we go from the elliptical shell to the spherical shell. And so you can see the there's a slight difference between the incident angle of the light that will give you this type of interaction and that type of interaction. So you can go through all the information, starting as an O wave, and then the acoustic interaction coupling to an E wave, or going from an O wave to an O wave. And you could also draw the uh, normal shells for a biaxial crystal. If I were to draw these normal, the intersection of the normal shells with XC plane for a biaxial crystal, what would that look like? So it'd be two ellipses, yeah. So I could draw two ellipses like that. Direction is the optical axis. Yeah, so it's. There's two of them, right? It's biaxial. And there are to where there's only a single value of the normal shells. So just a reminder of what these normal shells mean. Now we're getting a chance to see how they're used. Um, turns out that there is a maximum acoustic frequency that you can have and have, um, have diffraction from the light. You can see that from these diagrams and that there's a maximum length for this acoustic K vector, beyond which there's no way to go from one point on the shell to another point on the shell. And depending on the type of interaction, whether you're going from, here we're going from O to an E wave, the maximum K vector is less than if we're going from a, an O wave to an O wave or an E wave to an E wave. So this acoustic K vector by the way, corresponds to um, twice the k vector of what your input optical wave would be. So twice the k vector means half of the wavelength. So this is an acoustic wave that has wave fronts that are half a wavelength apart. Um, and if the wavelengths get any closer together than that, then you can't satisfy the Bragg condition. You can't get um, so even at normal incidents where the path length difference is maximum, you can't get a full wave of, of phase delay between the two, two rays that add up in the diffracted beam. 
Okay. Uh, did people download the new copy of the notes that have these uh, drawn in? If you, if you didn't, you probably don't have uh, half of these ellipses and we just arrows pointing to nowhere. Okay. okay. Well, uh, let's. We'll look at the math in a minute. Um, before we do any math, maybe it's worth uh, doing the demo that I brought in. So I uh, dug up an acousto-optic modulator. We'll talk about devices next time on Wednesday. Um, it's here. If you want to come up and take a look, you're welcome to. It's a little box. Inside of it is a crystal. It's about uh, one square centimeter cross-section and uh, three or four centimeters long. There's a piezoelectric transducer on this side. It's just going to convert an input voltage into uh, a displacement of the end of that transducer. That will introduce a strain wave propagating through the crystal. And this particular one has really big apertures in the front or back. So that makes it really easy to steer a beam through it. Um, so there's the beam going straight through. These two beams, anyone want to hazard a guess what those are? Yeah, that's uh, diffraction. So I can turn them off. So I was driving this with a uh, 40 megahertz or so RF wave. Turn it on. There they are. Um, here's a oscilloscope showing the 40 megahertz or so wave that's at 35 megahertz right now. Uh, the cord's very short, so I can't turn it towards you, Paul. As I change the frequency, you can look on the oscilloscope, you can see the frequency change. Uh, on the board, if I change the frequency of the RF wave, you see the uh, diffraction angle change. So, this device is useful for a lot of things. Um, first of all, these two beams have different frequency than that one. The frequency difference is the acoustic frequency. So they're about 40 megahertz different. One's 40 megahertz high, one's 40 megahertz lower. And we can change that. Right? So we can change the frequency of those beams by uh, adjusting our dial and our function generator. So if you had an, a need to tune the frequency of your laser over very fine amounts, one way to do it is send it through an acousto-optic modulator and use that as your the beam that goes into your experiment. Okay, now, uh, if you don't want changes in the frequency to couple into positional changes, you need to retroreflect the beam. And then uh, when you go through the, when you double pass the modulator, then it's going to be collinear with your input beam. So you can, you can null out that, uh, that angle effect. Um, it's also useful, as you might guess, as a scanning system. Right, so there's lots of applications we need to scan a laser beam. So laser machining comes to mind, engraving, uh, LASIK surgery, um, all sorts of surgeries. Um, raster scanned imaging. And if you want to do it rapidly, then using physical mirrors that are moving around has some limitations because you have inertia. 
but an acoustro-optic modulator like this, you can very rapidly tune. And so this is actually sold as a deflector for scanning. And so you take a pair of these, you cross them, and you can scan an X and Y. And that's why it has such a wide window, is you take two of these, put them cross, and uh, you need that large input aperture because your input beam is going to be scanned around by the preceding modulator. Uh, okay, so we'll talk about that. Um, I didn't optimize this at all, so I didn't adjust the polarization to optimize it. Um, and this isn't the wavelength uh, this is designed for. It's possible to get 100% efficiency um, if you optimize your design. Typically, if you just take an off-the-shelf design, though, and you run a laser through it, you, uh, there, are fundamental, there are limits that prevent you from getting that. So we'll see what those limits are. So in order to see that, in order to uh, quantitatively say anything about how much diffraction we get, uh, we can go through this coupled mode analysis. Remember the coupled mode analysis we did for, um, for perturbations in a crystal? Our perturbations now are due to the acoustic waves. And we saw last time how the uh, strain right here couples through the, uh, the acousto-optic tensor to produce a change in the impermeability tensor. A change in the impermeability tensor is equivalent to a change in the uh, permittivity tensor. And the notation starts to get a little bit confusing, but because we're dealing with uh, waves rather than uh, changes to the values, um, we see this notation commonly epsilon sub 1, which does not mean the first element. It's not contracted notation. It does not mean the first element in a tensor. This epsilon sub 1 means the first Fourier series of the perturbation of the epsilon tensor. So we have an acoustic wave traveling through. The perturbation uh, could be described as some component at the acoustic frequency, some component at second harmonic acoustic frequency. And this is the amplitude of that component at the acoustic frequency. So if you have a perfectly sinusoidal wave, you can think of this epsilon 1 as essentially the um, effect of that perfectly sinusoidal wave on the permittivity tensor. So um, here's where that epsilon 1 gets defined. It comes from the unperturbed tensor and the acoustic perturbation. Once we define those things, the, uh, the way we chug through our coupled mode analysis, similar to the way we did it for the, uh, we did it in the case of a Faraday isolator, or a Faraday rotator. Okay, so we have the wave equation written here. This is the normal wave equation. And then there's some perturbation to the permittivity tensor. So this is the unperturbed permittivity tensor. That's the perturbation. And that's the wave equation which we can have trial solutions that look like this. E1 and E2 are the normal modes of propagation in the unperturbed crystal. And because there's a perturbation, their amplitudes are going to vary slowly 
as the light propagates through the crystal. So with this solution, plugging that in to this wave equation, the spatial derivatives just pull out factors of k. And when we do a second spatial derivative, we also have to take into account that this uh, amplitude is varying as a function of position. So we apply the chain rule. The derivative of this times this plus this times the derivative of that. And we get terms that look like this. Uh, we get second derivative terms. We get first derivative terms. And then we get uh, these terms that we didn't take the derivative of. So like we did before, we are going to assume that the amplitude is slowly varying. So that is to say, um, here, dA dz is small compared to k. So k is the rate at which the uh, electric field is oscillating at optical frequencies. dA dz is the rate at which the slope is changing. And if we do that, we can neglect these second derivative terms because they're much smaller than the terms that depend on k. And we've now called k We've now called our k vector um, explicitly as having a component along the acoustic wavefront and a component normal to the acoustic wavefront. And so here, alpha is along x, beta is along z, and our acoustic wave is propagating along z. So we're interested in how the light couples from uh, this input to this diffracted as it crosses, so as it varies along x. So our spatial derivatives are going to be with respect to x. All right, this is the expression that we had on the last slide. And now we want to um, relate different parts of the expression. So the last time that we did this, we said the x components of this expression have to equal and the y components of this expression have to equal. And we turn the single expression, vector expression, into two expression. Um, we're going to do a similar thing here, except that we're going to require the different frequency components equal. Okay, so the left side of this expression, rho, right, and it's got components at omega 1 and it's got a component at omega 2. And if this equation is going to be valid at any time, then the term, or the, the factor on the term that's oscillating at omega 1 has to equal whatever factor there is on the right-hand side that's oscillating at omega 1. And likewise, this factor, which is, tells us how fast uh, the left-hand side oscillates at omega 2, 
has to equal the term on the right-hand side, which tells us how fast the right-hand side oscillates at omega 2. So that's necessary for this to hold at all time. Okay, so on the left side, we have terms like omega 1. On the right-hand side, now, which because it's not a DC field, it's a traveling wave, I've written it as a cosine wave where I've expanded the cosine into the, the exponentials. And I'm going to multiply that by these amplitudes. And so if I have a field that's oscillating at omega 1 here, when I multiply it by this term, it's going to give me a field that's oscillating at omega 1 plus big omega. And when I multiply it by this oscillating at omega 1 minus big omega. So if equals little omega 2, then I can say that this amplitude times this amplitude has to equal this amplitude. Uh, likewise, if omega 1 minus big omega equals omega 2, then it's this amplitude times this amplitude equals this. And then likewise, uh, this, this is my omega 2 amplitude times this, which is the, sh uh, this times this gives me a field at omega 2 plus big omega. And if that equals omega 1, then that would equal that amplitude. Okay, so that lets me write this expression as two differential equations, two coupled differential equations. And all these amplitude terms, I've defined in a single coupling constant. So I had omega squared u, 2 alpha, which appears here. And because I have an amplitude here and a field vector here, I have some freedom in how I choose, how I normalize that field vector. And I've chosen to normalize it in such a way that uh, this coupling constant works out to this value. And this is not in your notes. That was missing from my, from my original copy of the lecture notes, and I added it in today. So with this normalization for the electric field, and P is a polarization vector. Yeah. So this represents the direction of the polarization. This is some normalized amplitude. It's chosen to give me this nice symmetric relationship between these two differential equations. And in deriving this, we assumed that the Bragg condition was met. Right? That frequency omega 1 plus big omega equaled omega 2. Right here. And that the the momentum is matched as well. So I know this is going very fast. It would take me the entire class, I think, to go through this on the board. And since we've already done this type of analysis, and because I want to kind of focus on the results, I'm sort of relying on my notes and going through it a little faster than 
maybe you can process it, but you can look over the notes on your own if you'd like. Um, okay, so here are those two expressions. We had similar coupled first order equations before when we dealt with a static perturbation to the permittivity tensor. And we were able to solve, solve, for example, this expression for A1, plug it in here, and get a second order uncoupled equation that we could solve easily. Different this time is this phase factor. It wasn't there last time. Okay, so let's look at what that phase factor tells us. Um, first, let's look at these, these differential equations. It says the rate at which field 1 is changing, or mode 1 is changing, is proportional to the strength of mode 2. Okay, so let's let mode 2 be the diffracted beam, mode 1 be the input beam. And maybe the second equation makes more sense. The rate at which the diffracted beam is growing depends on how much intensity there is or how much uh, field amplitude there is in mode 1. So if you have more input field, you get more output field. And the stronger this is, the faster this grows. But there's this term delta alpha x in the numerator. Uh, delta alpha is the difference. So if they're different, that means the x component of the k vectors is different. As the waves propagate along x, um, this one oscillates at a different rate than this one does if there's a delta alpha. And they'll eventually, if they start off in phase, they'll eventually drift out of phase. And when they're out of phase, delta alpha x is equal to pi. This e to the i delta alpha x is minus 1. And so what was uh, mode 2 building up due to the presence of mode 1 becomes mode 2 due to the presence of mode 1. Meaning instead of transferring energy from the incident field to the diffracted field, you start to couple light from the diffracted field back to the incident field. If there's a phase mismatch. Okay, so if alpha 1 is not equal to alpha. Okay, Bragg can just, you can see from this picture that if everything's symmetric and this is an isotropic material, alpha 1 will equal alpha 2. In that case, it doesn't matter how far you go through the crystal, you never have the waves drift out of phase. If they're not equal, then there's some maximum length you can go before they drift out of phase. No longer are coupling light into the diffracted beam. And that's one thing that's going to limit how much power you can get into the diffracted beam. Okay, so at the Bragg condition, these equations simplify because they don't have these phase factors. We can solve this um, and get an input wave, which is decreasing as a cosine function, and a diffracted wave, which is increasing as a sine function. And you can solve for the distance x at which the incident wave goes to zero and the diffracted wave becomes maximized. And that's the difference, that's the distance through which you would want to propagate to get 100% conversion of the light into the uh, diffracted beam. So that's going to be specific 
based on this coupling constant k that depends on the wavelength. Said that this particular device was not optimized for the wavelength it's using. That means for the thickness it has, um, the value of kappa x is not such that this term is maximized and that one's minimized. So if we talk about power in the diffractive beam versus the incident beam, the power or the energy is proportional to the mode amplitude squared. So we can write the diffraction efficiency as the amplitude of the diffracted wave squared over the incident wave squared of the input. This is sine squared kappa x. And so this is the value where we get full power transfer, x equals pi over two. And as a reminder, you can write the kappa here, and I've written it now in terms of the index of refraction. But you can see it's a function of omega, which is a function of wavelength. Function of index of refraction, the amount of strain. And so you can adjust the intensity of the acoustic wave to change um, to change the amount of output power. Okay, so that was the case for a small angle diffraction. You can go through a similar analysis for large angle diffraction. Um, the analysis is similar. I'm not going to walk through every step. The results are similar as well. It's now um, the beam, it's, it's the, so by large angle, I mean the uh, angle of incidence relative to the direction of the wave fronts is large. So that's like your light propagating along or against the sound wave. And in that case, it's the z component of the k vector that needs to be matched between the input and output beam. So that's the beta, and it's this delta beta now that's going to give us uh, a restriction on how long you can propagate through the crystal before you start uh, converting light back into the incident wave. Okay, so we have coupled equations that are uh, evaluated when beta 1 and beta 2 have the same sign. That means both waves are propagating in the same direction. So we call that co-directional coupling. Uh, we get a slightly different expression when we have contra-directional coupling. You might guess there's just a minus sign that appears. Um, and the results are similar to what we had before in that there's a maximum transmission which looks like sine squared times some uh, parameter times the length of the interaction. But in this case, um, I've evaluated this for some general delta beta. I haven't required delta beta to go to zero. And you can see that if your um, beams are not matched, if they're not phase matched, if delta beta is not zero, then this term here, which tells you the maximum transmission you can never go to one. 
So you can only get 100% transmission or uh, trans transfer of energy when you have no phase mismatch of the incident and diffracted beam. Okay, so um, this is a func this uh, optimal length here is the length of the crystal, whereas before the optimal interaction. was the width of the crystal, or more likely, the width of the acoustic beam. So if your acoustic beam is inside of a crystal, um, and you have a transducer on one side, and it doesn't uniformly fill the, the crystal, you're limited by the width of the acoustic beam for small angle large angle diffraction. And we have similar expressions for counter-directional coupling. I'm going to skip through those. Uh, we'll do an example. Let's see, do I have... We're going to skip that example. I don't think that example printed in your notes. You can check if your slide 45 had an example. I think the reason it didn't print is because I skipped it because I don't think it... Uh, do you have it? Um, I think there's a problem with that example. So I'm going to skip it. Okay, um, questions at this point? I know that was a lot of math very fast. Um, things to take away are it's possible to get 100% of the energy converted into the diffracted beam, but it only happens for specific geometries. Um, and that generally if you just stick a laser through a, a crystal, you're not going to get that at the end of case. Um, you have the notes now if you ever to calculate that for your job. Uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to ask anything on the homework that requires you go through that, but you have it now. Um, and the other thing to take away is that the reason you can't get 100% diffraction efficiency comes from the fact that if your beams that you're coupling between don't have the same uh, same value of the k vector in the direction that they're propagating, then they drift out of phase. When they go out of phase, instead of coupling energy in, you start coupling it out. So that's the case here. The acoustic interaction. It's also the case in nonlinear interaction. When we talk about nonlinear optics, this is a really important issue that really drives most of the design of nonlinear optical devices. Paul? No, you get all the light coupled into the uh, side okay. dots. Um, yeah. So, okay, uh, we talked about the Bragg condition, and it's called Bragg diffraction. One of the things that we said when we started was that there's uh, this picture of an equilateral triangle, which represents our Bragg condition is an equilateral triangle, at least in an uh, isotropic material, because the uh, input k vector and the output k vector are just about the same. The change in the k vector due to the absorption of an optical or of an acoustic phonon is insignificant. Um, and so the question 
arises, Chris asked, do you ever get partial absorption of a photon? And I'll generalize that to say, can you ever get more than one phonon being absorbed? Um, if you did, here's our Bragg condition diagram for a single phonon being absorbed. So here's the k vector for that single phonon. If you were to absorb two phonons, your diffracted k vector would have to be longer than your input k vector. Or at least if you're at the Bragg condition for a single photon, or for a single phonon, you could not simultaneously be at the Bragg condition for two phonon absorption. Okay, so you see this in this diagram. K2 is, is not the same length as K1, therefore you don't get momentum conservation. However, if you have a small or narrow acoustic beam, then your beam will spread out. You can call that diffraction of the acoustic beam if you want. You can call it Heisenberg's uncertainty relationship, telling you that if the width of the beam is confined, then the momentum has to have some spread. And as we saw, the momentum is given by the k vector. And so if there's a spread in the k vector, that means there's a spread in the direction that the light is going, or that the acoustic wave is going. And so you can think of the, the acoustic wave, it's confined at one location, and it must spread out as it propagates in the field. If this is the case, you can get two phonon absorption, because what you can get is uh, essentially the Bragg condition being met for a single phonon absorption, and your incident light coupling to a diffracted beam that has k vector k1. And then because you have a range of k vectors for your acoustic beam, all the k vectors are not pointing in the same direction. And there's not just a single k vector pointing up. There's a range of k vectors. So there are some acoustic phonons that have a direction such that you can then meet the single phonon absorption Bragg condition between k1 and k2. You couldn't, if you had a wide acoustic beam, so a plane wave acoustic beam, then you have a single direction for the k vector, and adding two k vectors uh, doesn't allow you to meet the bright condition. Is that picture clear? Okay, so this is called the Raman Nath regime, as opposed to the Bragg regime. So a plane wave acoustic, a plane acoustic wave. Um, gives us a single value for the acoustic k vector, a single conservation momentum geometry, we call it the Bragg condition. But if you have a range of k vectors, because you have a narrow acoustic beam, then you can simultaneously meet the Bragg condition for multiple phonon absorption. We call that the Raman Nath regime. So quite frequently, we quantify how far into the Raman Nath regime we are, or how far away from it we are. Um, and one way to do that is by comparing the spread in the acoustic beam, delta k, to a spread in angle, delta theta. So if you know delta k, um, that equals k delta theta. That some, some particular k vector, there must be some spread in angle 
to produce that delta k. And then you can compare that spread and angle to the Bragg angle. And so as this spread angle becomes bigger, as it becomes bigger than the Bragg angle, then we say we're further and further into the Raman-Nath regime. So remember, here's an expression for the Bragg angle. Um, actually, this should be sine theta b equals lambda over 2n lambda. Um, the reason I wrote it as theta b, not sine theta b, is that typical parameters, the Bragg angle works out to be about 5 degrees or so. So sine theta is approximately equal to theta. We can write this, this parameter q as the ratio of the spread in the acoustic angle to the Bragg angle. That ratio is written there, and that quantifies how far into the uh, Raman-Nath regime we are. And it's exactly the opposite of what I just said. I'm looking at the slide now and seeing that it's the Bragg angle divided by the acoustic beam spread, not vice versa. So Q is greater than 1, meaning the Bragg angle is large compared to the beam spread, very little beam spread. We're very much in a Bragg regime. And then Q smaller than 1, say you're in the Raman-Nath regime. So if you're in the Raman-Nath regime, you'd expect to see more than a single diffraction order. Is this the Bragg regime or the Raman-Nath regime? Bragg, yeah, we only see the first order diffraction. We don't see a second order spot. Um, okay, so we can quantify a little bit how much the diffraction efficiency will be in the uh, in the Raman-Nath regime by considering the wave propagating across the, the uh, acoustic wavefront. So wavefront spreading out, confined to a small spatial extent passes through, um, the interaction time will generally be small. So small compared to an infinite extent beam. And as a result, we can say that the acoustic uh, phase hasn't changed significantly during that interaction. And if that's the case, we can say uh, what would be the phase of the light propagating across this static index of refraction profile at the time when that profile is as drawn? And then we can write the output electric field as input electric field with some additional phase delay. Index of refraction profile. Uh, uh, a k vector, and we're trying to calculate a phase. 
that's, that's the k vector in the material times the length gives us a phase. Multiply it by a length. That length we will integrate the, uh, the acoustic beam. And if our k vector rather going at an angle of theta, then we can say um, L, or L is related to delta x by L cosine theta equals delta x. And in fact, we can say dL cosine theta is equal to dx. And we can make a substitution dL is dx over cosine theta. And this is what we have. So my k I've written is omega over c. My index of refraction, I'm only concerned about the, the variation in the index of refraction, so I call that delta n. And then this phase term, I can take this delta n and write it as some amplitude times my sinusoidal wave. This is a quasi-static calculation. Uh, so what I'm assuming is that at time t, the phase shift is given by this expression. So I'm not averaging over um, this oscillating phase when I integrate across my acoustic beam. So if this is my phase shift, I can take all this, call it delta, and then the time-dependent part, I will keep and I will put that into the phase of my output wave. And what's nice about doing that is I can then use this Jacobi-Anger identity, which says e to the i delta sine x is equal to a series of Bessel functions, each at a frequency um, that phi should be x. Okay, so here was my output field. Express uh, this part here as a series of Bessel functions. And then I nth term is the amplitude of the nth order diffraction, diffracted beam. And so the diffraction efficiency into the nth order looks like this amplitude squared. J sub m squared. And it's going to be a function of delta. The amount of uh, the amplitude of the phase shift that I have. Now I plug that back in. plot a few Bessel functions. Right, so J0 starts at 1. J1, J2, all the other J's start at 0. So if my modulation index, my modulation depth, that's what we call delta, is 0, if I have no amplitude to my acoustic wave, 
the efficiency of the zeroth order diffracted beam, that means the wave that just goes straight through is 100%, and all the other orders are zero. And then as I turn up the strength of the acoustic wave, I increase, basically I increase this delta n naught. I can also increase the strength of the interaction by increasing the interaction length. Um, but as I increase that modulation depth, power leaves the, the undiffracted beam and goes into the higher order diffracted beam. And there's a certain ratio that those beams will have. Right, so you can't turn up the power in the first order beam without also turning up the power in the second order beam. And in fact, you can measure the power in each of the orders and then look at the ratios and find out how much your modulation depth is. That's the typical way that uh, you would calibrate, for example, how large a change in the index is for a given driving field. That's how things like the uh, strain optic tensor are measured. Okay, so let's do an example. Um, calculate the necessary beam width to maximize diffraction to the first order. If you have this amount of change in the index of refraction, your acoustic beam is propagating straight across or your optical beams propagating straight across the acoustic beam. That means theta equals zero. Um, and we pick a Heaney wavelength, like we've got here. What fraction of the power gets diffracted um, into that order? So we want to maximize diffraction to the n equal one order. So we want the modulation depth to be right here. So you can look up in a table, you can ask Mathematica where that peak is, and it's at about 1.85 for the modulation depth. So we just set all this stuff in the parentheses equal to 1.85. And solve their terms, delta n and lambda. So we have delta n, knowing lambda lets us figure out omega, we know theta we solve for delta x. And it's about 2 millimeters. How much power gets diffracted into that beam? That we can just read right off this graph. The amplitude of the J1 term on the graph looks like it's about 0.5. Ask Mathematica to evaluate that for you, or again, use the tables to find the maximum. The diffraction efficiency usually talks about the amount of power in the diffracted beam. That's the field squared. So 0.57 squared is going to give you about. Next time, we're going to talk about devices. So we're going to sort of not so much leave the theory behind, but just apply it to specific devices that are designed to do different things. So uh, amplitude modulators. We already talked about how this, well, I don't know if we did talk about it. If I, we see 
here that as I change the strength of the acoustic field, this is going to change. And it's going to change um, where I sit on this, uh, this curve. So I can change the amount of amplitude in the diffracted beam by changing the amplitude of my uh, acoustic field. Uh, we'll talk about uh, beam deflectors like this and the figures of merit that describe how they work and some of the device limitations. That's all for today. <laughs>